are constantly being shaped by forces outside of ourselves. And as we come to understand that, then we can shape those forces in a way that allows us to have more and more life, more and more freedom, more and more justice, more and more love. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Keisha Moore. She's a highly praised women's life coach, speaker, educator, and author of numerous scholarly articles, as well as the book, Your Life as a Celebration, Accomplishing Your Goals with Less Stress and More Joy. Dr. Moore is a trained social researcher and therapist who specializes in goal achievement in women's professional and personal lives. I'm going to be honest, I'm not a very goal-oriented person not a super laser focused person and i've often been put off by some of the ways in which words like passion and purpose have been used but what i love about dr moore's approach is that she's using goal setting as a way of making us be very intentional at looking at how do we spend our time and energy and how do we actually want to spend it and it's grounded in self-awareness and self-reflection her idea of your purpose in life isn't about what job you do or what career you have. It's about something deeper that isn't contingent upon external circumstances or relationships. It's about bringing the strengths and gifts that you inherently have into whatever you're doing in your life. And I think it's her approach is really just down to earth and um, makes you just really think about what are you doing either intentionally or unintentionally in your time here. And Dr. Moore really shows how when we take responsibility for our own lives and our own healing, then we can better take responsibility for helping to heal our systems and our communities and our world. So I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot and I hope you enjoy it too. Dr. Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Victoria. I'm <laughs> so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And please meet Keisha also. Keisha, okay. Um, yes. So I'd love to spend some time talking about your journey and speaking broadly about your experience in the worlds of social science and life coaching. And then I would really like to talk more specifically about some of the subjects that you tackle in your book, Your Life as a Celebration. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Okay. Um, so I find it so interesting that you work in these realms that are often painted as being opposed to each other in a way. So as a, a social science researcher, a professor of sociology, and as a life coach. And I was interested just to hear how, I, I understand that you got your BA in cross-cultural psychology and then your master's and PhD in sociology. Is that right? That's correct. So I was curious as to how you, what drew you to psychology first and then what, what made you shift to sociology and how did you kind of navigate the divides between those two disciplines in your early education and career? Okay, great. Um, well, the first thing I just wanted to highlight that I love the fact that you talk about these painted as being yeah. opposed, um, <laughs> Because I actually see them as very congruent and um, my whole life has been very interdisciplinary. Every time I got a new degree, it was in a new area. And even in the work that I continue to do um, professionally, I operate in interdisciplinary um, 
perspectives because my focus is really on um, helping the whole person. And humans are beautifully complicated and we can't be divided into disciplines. Um, and so my interest has been in studying, researching, and using whatever tools possible to allow me to accomplish my goal. So when I was an undergraduate, I um, wanted to be a psychology major. I was going to be a traditional psychologist and open up my own practice, my best friend and I. And um, what really moved me out of the narrow field of psychology was because um, I understood that humans needed to be uh, treated in context. And I was in a um, psychopathology class and we were talking about how important family was and you know what does it mean to help an individual be whole but then have them in a dysfunctional family mm -hmm. and so that undermines the effectiveness and i thought well we exist in more than just families we exist in communities we exist in in societies and so my interest really was how do i create the optimal environment for each individual to self-actualize and that has to be a institutional context. It has to be a place where people have kind of all of their basic needs, but also they have opportunities to discover their own unique contribution. They have opportunities to make those contributions. They have opportunities to have nurturing relationships with other people and building communities of love and justice really became my mantra. And so um, I quickly moved from straight psychology to at, at my institution, we could develop our own major. And so I developed my major. It was psychology, sociology, and anthropology. And I titled that cross-cultural psychology. Mm -hmm. But again, the focus was on understanding how to create communities of wellness um, that can allow individuals to reach their full potential. And when I graduated with that degree, I actually then went on to get a master's in social work. And so my MSW is actually in community organizing. And there my focus was on building institutions that um, really allowed individuals to develop. And so I focused on, um, I did some um, I was really focused on um, urban poverty. That was my main concern and kind of how do we uh, transform people's lives and allow them to have real opportunities for mobility. And so I did some community organizing around public housing um, with tenant rights organizations. I did some work in community development in terms of CDCs in um, Northwest part of Detroit. And I learned so much and I saw that um, there were these great activists who were out in the field every day building institutions that would allow us all to live healthier lives and to have real opportunities. And I also realized that a lot of those activists were eventually like they got burned out. Mm -hmm. They were um, overwhelmed, stressed, their health was compromised. I mean, there was so much hypertension and obesity and heart disease and, and just a lack of self-care. 
And when I would talk with them, you know, about why it's important to take care of yourself, the kind of thing was, well, you know, we have to get things right for our community first. And so they really sacrificed themselves in the effort to build healthier communities. And that just felt intuitively wrong to me. And I thought, wow, look at how much good they've accomplished already and what could be possible if they could be sustained in like a way that didn't lead to burnout. Mm. And they, if it didn't compromise their relationships and if it didn't you know, cause them to be drained and bitter after a couple of years of doing this work, what are the individual levers that actually allow people to accomplish their highest potential? And so at the time when I was deciding to get my PhD, I actually applied to a number of different programs. So I eventually decided on sociology and you know have enjoyed and appreciated all that I've learned there. Um, my particular area of research in sociology has been on urban neighborhoods and community development. And I've combined kind of the research and literature on, you know, how do you build healthy communities with my practical experience in community organizing to really, um, I think I have a good solid understanding of what humans need in order to thrive. And then I work to create those both in institutions, but also my coaching business is really around creating those outside of let's say government institutions or academic institutions, because we still need those same things and we all need those same things in order to flourish. And my particular kind of coaching, I actually work specifically with women. And um, part of the reason why I do that is because most of the people who are doing this social justice work um, and community development work are women. Mm -hmm. And to support them. And also, I love this. Um, it's an African proverb that says, if you want to educate a nation, educate a woman. And it gets to the fact that women play such a critical role in caring, not just for themselves, but for families, for children, for communities. They're very active in volunteering. And so I feel like it, the way that I can best serve society and help to build communities um, in a kind of to scale level is to invest in the people who are already doing that kind of work and allow them to do it at a bigger level and allow them to do it in a way that sustains them so that we actually have a self-sustaining social movement of people who are concerned with building healthy communities and creating opportunities for all people. The reason I reached out to you and wanted to talk to you is because I've always been so fascinated by how we kind of create these containers of self over here and society over here or our public lives and our personal private lives. But it's like that boundary really is so permeable, right? It's just this flow of like society creating us and us creating society, right? Um, and I find yeah. it just amazing that you are able to explicitly do work in both of those realms that you've done, not just the community organizing and research, but then the fact that you're also a teacher, you know, you're a professor. So you're also working, you know, with students, teaching them about this stuff, and then also doing the coaching, I just think is incredible. I count it a privilege to be able to do this kind of work. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that like, who we are, I believe in 
bringing our full selves to the work that we do. And so whether I'm in the classroom or I'm doing research or I'm working with a client, that the things that I care very much about are present in all of those areas. And I think that's why, to me, it makes perfectly good sense and it's complementary. And I loved what you said about society is in us and we are in society because that's like the one nugget that I try to get everyone to understand, particularly in my intro to sociology classes. Mm. And it's like, if you can really appreciate the fact that there is no society without individuals, but that we don't exist just on our own, we are constantly being shaped by forces outside of ourselves. And as we come to understand that, then we can take control and start to direct how those forces not only shape us, but shape the other people that we share life with and shape those forces in a way that allows us to have more and more life, more and more freedom, more and more justice, more and more love, as opposed to things that are more limiting. So that actually is my goal in whatever particular professional hat I tend to be putting on. I'm so curious to know what it's like for you to kind of be able to hold, you know, hold in one hand um, knowledge, deep knowledge of just how, you know, broken some of our systems are or how troubled some of our systems are. And then on the other hand, be able to sit with just one person. Yeah, I'm curious about what qualities you feel like help you to to be in both of those spaces with so much passion and, and energy. Yeah, I would say the two things that I bring to everything that I do and that allows me to be effective are that I have a systems analysis and that I am motivated by love. And so when I'm working with an individual that might be a coaching client, my systems analysis allows me to help them to understand how their lives are being shaped by forces outside of them. It helps me to help them understand how they can work strategically to create more opportunities for themselves that they're trying to create, how their behavior is not kind of siloed in one area of their life. Like I work with um, most of the women that I work with are business owners. And, you know, we don't just talk about their business. We talk about your whole life because your whole life is a system and things flow into each other. And there is no, you know, one part of your life that doesn't bleed over to the other. And so being able to think in systems um, and being able to help people see how they operate in systems and how to create systems that are congruent with your own values and allow you to be authentic and whole wherever you're showing up, I think is um, a value added that my kind of dis- dispersed training allows me to bring to coaching. And then um, also really being motivated by love. And and I don't say love in maybe like a touchy-feely thing, but understanding like I am really concerned with how I can be my best self, which cannot happen without the other people. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I understand we are all intimately connected and our lives for positive or negative are dependent on one one another. And so I am interested in, you know, creating creating love and justice. And that requires that I operate 
like at a policy level. It requires that I operate at a practice level, but of course it also requires that I operate at an individual level because how can we overlook individuals and say that, you know, your life, your pain, your hurt doesn't matter, but I'm so concerned with the collective, like we're not. So um, life exists on all of those levels and our ability to um, communicate love uh, should exist on all of those levels. And, you know, I am always moved by the quote that Dr. King shared where he said that justice is love in action. And I wholeheartedly believe that. So, you know, whether I am um, doing some policy work or advocating for social justice in terms of organizing, or I'm sitting with a person and helping them to heal some pain and trauma that they are experiencing. All of those are they from the same place, and they're all necessary in order to create um, the kind of community that we all thrive in. Yeah, I'm thinking like something that's so powerful about what you are doing is that I feel like we live in a very individualistic culture and Mm -hmm. sometimes that can lead us to feel more guilt and shame about our failings or flaws or the ways that we're not perfect. We feel a lot of pressure about, well, if I just did this, this, and this perfectly, I would feel, you know, it's all up to me and it's all on me. But with your systems, um, approach and thinking you can also show people how the systems that we're born into whether it's your family your neighborhood your country you know there are certain things that have also like if you're born into a neighborhood that's really polluted you know and you have asthma or whatever that's that's something that wasn't entirely in your control right so it seems like it's it must be really helpful to also take some of that guilt that peop- that so many of us seem to feel about everything, every way in which we're not perfect and be able to put it in context and then move to action about, you know, what we can try to do. I would hope so. I mean, I do talk about us existing like you know, fish in water. And so there is no way that I can be a fish and say I'm not what I'm not breathing in the same water that you are and everyone else's. And so if we have, to the extent that we have a racist, sexist, classist, homophobic society, those ideas, those things become a part of us on individual levels, on very deep levels. And to the extent that we can acknowledge that, then we can start to heal, right? Start to clean ourselves and we recognize that for us to be really clean, like we have to clean the whole bowl, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or else it'll just be circulating. Mm-hmm. And so I love your statement about, you know, not being stuck in guilt, but actually developing an analysis that allows us to do our own individual healing and move to action to work on a, with others mm-hmm. for a collective healing. And those would be my goals. Um, I actually do... Um, consider myself a recovering perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And I think like many Americans and particularly many women, um, I was raised with the idea that, you know, I should be a good girl. I should do everything well. Um, If I did, there would be no problems. And if there are problems, it's because I didn't do enough. 
um, no matter how much I was doing. And that pressure was overwhelming Mm. for me. And it limited my ability to be effective in anything that I was doing. It undermined my self-confidence. It kind of caused me to shrink and not try to do big things, although I thought big things needed to be done. But it was like, well, who am I to try to do this big thing? I don't even really have my own act together. And so, you know, that pressure to be perfect actually stops us from showing up and from um, contributing our gifts to the world. And I was um, just listening to someone share the other day, they were talking about um, this book, The Five Invitations. And um, it's written, I think the guy who wrote it is a Buddhist who specializes in end of life care. And he was kind of talking about how learning to die with dignity helps you live with dignity. And one of the invitations was around um, accepting as is, like you as is. And he was talking about this metaphor of being in a thrift shop and where you see this, you know, beautiful outfit, but it's missing, you know, a button or has a snag. But there's a tag that's like as is. And you recognize that those imperfections don't take away the value of that thing. You still want to buy it. Mm. And that, you know, what would happen if we actually treated ourselves like that? And I thought, oh, I love that metaphor. I'm going to make, I actually am going to make a tag (laughs) as is to just remind myself because, you know, that's why I consider myself a recovering perfectionist because it is hard. Um, There's so many messages in our society that um, we are supposed to be perfect and that leads people to hide because, of course, nobody is, but then we get into like living inauthentically and pretending that we are in hiding ourselves from one another. And so, you know, I, in healing myself, I kind of come to accept I am not perfect. I am beautifully imperfect. And that actually is um, a gift that I have to share and I can offer to um, to other people to inspire them that you don't have to be perfect to get up and do great things. And, um, you know, by us being able to show up and be authentic, I think that's the only way we can actually have real community. Everything else is kind of pretend play and we don't get at the kind of human to human level. Mm. And I think that's what allows us to have systems that are um, oppressive and dehumanizing because we're not, you know, fully embracing our own humanity and our limitations and our vulnerabilities. So, yeah, I think on every level, uh, it is important for us to show up as our full authentic selves. I loved in the book when you said, um, if our motivations to improve the self are grounded in fear that others, including yourself, cannot love and accept you as you are, then your efforts are futile. Um, mm-hmm. I, I loved that you addressed that because it does feel like sometimes we think that eventually we will reach this point where we've got it all figured out, we're perfect, and then we can show up and show ourselves to people. Um, but it, I do find even in my own life that my most compassionate moments are bred from looking at someone and thinking that I know how they feel in that moment because I've, I know what it feels like to make a mistake or to be hurt in that way. Or, you know, it's 
being able to feel with that person because I'm not perfect. (laughs) I'm not hovering Mm -hmm. above. (laughs) In the book, I love that you give these activities that really seem like they'll help people build greater Um, Mm self-awareness. Like before before setting goals you you give these activities for people to to get to know their values and I love the activity where you suggest that um, people write down 25 descriptors um, yeah that would describe themselves and then cross off all the ones that are in relation to other people or ones that could be taken away like a title or a job um, and then sit with the two or three that are left that aren't aren't really changing. Um, you describe yourself as a child of God, a woman of vision, and a passionate lover of justice. Mm-hmm. And those are incredible. And I was wondering, could you have come to those when you were in your 20s? Or was it difficult for you to to do that listing activity for yourself? Yes, of course it was. <laughs> and when I was early in my 20s, you know, my list would have been like, you know, I'm a straight A student. I am a daughter. I'm a wife. I'm, um, so, you know, the idea of clinging to the things that I thought made me a value and that other people actually praised me for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the great things of aging as we embrace it is we start to have some of the things that seem so sure, they actually um, (laughs) become less sure. Mm -hmm. And it causes us to question what that's about. And I remember being in graduate school in my PhD program at this time, and really thinking like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I was so shocked and embarrassed and sad. And I had a conversation with a very close old time friend. And, you know, he was like, well, if you don't want to do it, just don't. Like, nobody will care. I mean, like, not care, but less of you. And I was like, no, you don't understand. They will, because if I'm not the person who always achieves, like, what am I? Like, people won't love me essentially is Mm -hmm. what I was afraid of and he was like oh you know you're so foolish like people don't love you because of what you've achieved um they enjoy and celebrate with you but that's not what they love about you and you know that conversation gave me the freedom to to actually make a choice based on what I wanted rather than what my parents wanted Mm -hmm. for me or what my professors expected or all of those things. And I think, you know, a lot of the women that I work with are very accomplished women who, you know, have done so much in their careers in particular. Um, But a lot of that has been to prove to other people or living out other people's visions of what a successful life looks like. And when we create a space where they actually have the freedom to think about what do I want out of life? Wow. You know, it's a very powerful moment and they start entertaining things that they had never considered before because essentially they had been living out someone else's vision. Yeah, I heard someone say, and now I can't remember who it was, but someone, it was a woman who said, now that I'm done being perfect, I can start being good. And then once I was good, I I realized I could start being free. 
something like that. Like she basically was saying she went from perfect to good to free. Um, and I was, that really struck me because I realized that I haven't thought all that much about freedom, you know, as a young woman, I thought much more about perfectionism. <laughs> yes, that is what we teach you. Yeah. <laughs> much of our particularly gender socialization is about that. But I think, you know, when we can't accept ourselves, like when we're like, perfectionism is basically saying we have to become good enough to be acceptable. And when we say that to ourselves, how can we really accept anyone else? Um, and that's what compromises our ability to have healthy relationships, both on individual person to person level, but also institutional, right? Because we keep holding out this carrot for, well, you have to do something to deserve mm. whatever mm. good things. And freedom is like, you show up with an innate human dignity and right, and you deserve, you know, all of these things that are just a part of life that you get as a human and you have so much to contribute. Um, and so, yeah, you don't have to earn my respect. You don't have to earn my acceptance. You don't have to earn the right to eat or be treated with dignity or to have, you know, food and education. Like these are things that um, should be provided for you because you are human. And I think that we can start having those kinds of conversations politically when we can have those um, conversations kind of individually. Mm. Yeah, I love that you just tied all of that together. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, like I said, in, in your book, you lay out some really interesting activities and exercises. And also in your um, YouTube video series, you talk about things like you have a, a couple of videos about the science of happiness and you talk about mm -hmm. the importance of nature and gratitude and kindness. And I was wondering if there's a practice that that you find really helpful for people who are struggling with feeling like they are acceptable as they are? Is there something that you suggest to clients or that you practice yourself on a daily basis that kind of helps you to cultivate some of that self-acceptance? Yes, definitely. Because as I said, I'm in recovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cultivate it daily. Um, so there are a couple of things. The first I would say is really connecting with your purpose. And um, that becomes the foundation for everything that you do. So I have a, a Facebook group, a free and open group that I um, have started. And it's a community of women. It's called Purpose, Passion and Power. So this is kind of my idea of how do we cultivate our um our unique power to make a positive change in our lives and in our world. And so we start with identifying our purpose, connecting with our passion and embracing our power to create a positive future for ourselves and others. And I think it goes actually in that order. So the first thing that I do with every client that I work with is to identify your life purpose and your purpose is not about a job and your purpose is not about a title or role. It's about who you are, what your unique gifts are and how you bring them to every situation that you're in. And so 
Um, we work on, you know, um, activities to help people connect with their purpose. I work on activities to help people identify their signature strengths. We all, like fingerprints, have unique strengths that are innate to us and come to us so easily that we might not even think of them as strengths. And we just think everybody can do it, but they really can't do it. Um, and so we undermine our um, our success because we don't recognize what our strengths are and we don't value them. So once I help women identify what their purpose is, then I help you identify what your signature strengths are. And then we talk about how can you use those signature strengths in your business, in your career, in your relationships, in every part of your life. And the great thing is that when you're operating in your strengths, you're happier you're more productive, you achieve your goals easier and faster. So it's just like a win-win situation. So those would be kind of the key, I think, building blocks to creating um, this kind of life. In terms of the day-to-day practical activities that I do and that I teach all my clients to do that I call my hour of power, And I love to sleep like my whole philosophy in college. My whole thing was how do I sleep to the last minute before I get up and make it to class or, you know, my version of I I always knew if I was having a bad day, I would just go to sleep. It was like a reset or free vacation. So I'm a big proponent of sleeping and I still am. But I find now that I actually wake up earlier so I can do, you know, my practice that I call my hour of power. And it is um, spending time doing meditation and devotions, spending time exercising, spending time doing my affirmations. And so every morning, you know, what you said about um, the things that I wrote about who I am, I have like a whole mantra that I right to remind myself who I am and what I'm here to do. And I say it every morning. And, you know, I do my meditation every morning for 20 minutes every morning, my deep breathing. And I do, you know, my yoga for 30 minutes every morning. And those things just prepare me to face, you know, whatever the day has. Every day is different. (laughs) Every day has its own, um, you know, challenges and excitements, highs and lows. But my ability to manage whatever that day has for me is so much greater once I have kind of started from that position of strength. And so I think connecting with our purpose and our passions or our signature strengths gives us that um, foundation. And then building in daily habits like the hour of power allows it to be where it's not just something that you did one time. Um, but it's something that you do every day. And the habits are what makes our character and what allows us to um, actually create the life that we have. So the life you have right now, the life I have right now is the product of my habits. And if I want a different life, then I have to change my habits because that's what um, produces whatever I have and whatever I will have. Um, And so I try to give myself and give my clients ways to translate the science of what we know actually 
allows people to be productive, successful, and happy, how to translate that into specific habits that you can do on a daily basis that will allow you to be your optimal self. Yeah, and I like how you talk about the importance of ritual in the book. Um, And I was wondering if you could define ritual, because I think people might hear that word and think lots of different things. Um, Yeah, could you talk about what a ritual is and why it is important for us to have those baked into our days? Yes, yes. So Durkheim would be proud of me (laughs) that I included rituals in in my book of personal development. Um, But basically, a ritual is a habit with intention behind it, that it is it is a meaningful action. And whenever we're doing a ritual, it's a way of us reminding ourselves who we are, what we think is important and what we're here to do. And so um, we think of rituals mostly as being associated with like a religious tradition, you know, like um, you might go to worship and there's a particular thing that you say, and there's a particular thing that your religious leader says and things that you do. And those are kinds of rituals. Um, Weddings are ritual. Baby showers are rituals. They're organized ways of us saying, you know, this is important. This is why it's important. This is what life is about. Um, And so, you know, a lot of times part of our socialization is that we're socialized into the rituals that our families and our communities have already created. Right. They've created those rituals. They teach them to us to be good participating members of this family or or of this community. We participate in those rituals mostly without even thinking about them. But the rituals are still shaping us whether we're thinking about them or not. Um, But what I invite people to consider is how can you create your own rituals that are based on your values, that are based on your purpose, that have that same power of on a regular basis reshaping you by focusing your attention on the things that you think of as important and by reminding you of who you are, what you're here to do and strengthening your ability to do that. So that's what a ritual does. And I'm thinking about, um, I feel like in the decade of our 20s in particular, it can be so tough to um, to have clarity and a sense of identity and purpose because for a lot of people, it's this time of, it could be a time of confusion, a time of trying to live up to other people's expectations or, or a time of like rebelling against things or, you know... Um, it can just be a disorienting time, especially when you graduate from school and you're, you know, entering adulthood. And I know for me, like on my list of identities, but when I graduated from college, student was a huge part of my identity. And then I didn't have that anymore. And it was like, oh, right. I forgot school was going to end, you know. <laughs> um, so I feel like what's interesting is in my, in the earlier half of my 20s, I thought that it was all about figuring out what I needed to do next. Mm-hmm. And then a few years into the into the decade of 20s, I started to realize like, oh, I think actually I need to look back a little bit at, like you just said, what are the rituals that 
I was socialized into. I didn't have that language for it. But I think I need to look back at actually intentionally thinking about and looking at what are the things that I valued as a kid and what are some of the gifts that I had? What were the structures that I grew up in in order to understand myself a little better rather than thinking it's all about doing something new. It was partially about going back to like, who am I? Where did I come from? Does that make sense? Of course it does. Of course it does. And this idea, you know, that what you are experiencing or what you describe, um, that's something that people in their 20s experience is also a part of our culture. And American culture in general is very much focused on doing as opposed to being. So even when we meet someone, you know, at a party or something, the first thing is like, oh, well, what do you do? As if that tells you something about that person. Um, And so we do come to identify ourselves through our careers. And that is not um, who we are, right? That's a part of who we are. And for some people, depending on how you chose your career, it may or may not be really connected, you know, to who you are as a person, as a soul. Um, And so I think that this idea of being able to live with intention and live on purpose is something that we may come to as we age, but we don't have to be quote unquote old in order to to get it and to start doing it. And so that's why I was sharing about, you know, this book around um, the things that people learn when they're dying and how can we use those things? Like we don't have to wait. In, well, one, we're all dying anyway, but Two, we don't have to wait until it's like knocking on our door for us to take those insights and use them to help us really enjoy our lives. So the same kind of wisdom that we that is available to us at the kind of moment of really coming to terms with our death is that same kind of wisdom that's available to us in every moment that we're alive, we've just not paid attention to it. And the same kind of wisdom, you know, that maybe, you know, I picked up in my 30s was actually available to me, you know, in my 20s and in my teens. I just didn't really grab hold of it. Um, And so we come to this point at different stages in our lives. um, But all of us are really struggling with you know, that same question of who am I, what am I here to do, and how can I, um, you know, live my life in a way that brings me joy and meaning and makes, builds a real legacy, right? Makes something positive so that when I'm gone, there's something to show for my life. Um, And that's what I think starting with your purpose allows you to do that now you have the answer to those questions. And so that question is much bigger than what kind of job am I going to hold? And it's much more important. But we spend a lot of time encouraging people to think about their jobs without necessarily encouraging them to think about their purpose. Mm. So is purpose something that you think the way that you acted out will change shape over your lifetime. Exactly. It will always change shape throughout your life because you are growing and your life is changing. 
and it shows up in every area of your life, mm. but it shows up differently. So as we were talking and, you know, listing all my different professional hats that I wear, um, the activities of those jobs, those particular professions are different, but the purpose is the same. And each of them are expressions of my purpose. And all my volunteer activities are expressions of my purpose. And how I parent is an expression of my purpose. And how I show up in my family and in my friendships and my relationships is an expression of my purpose. Um, so our, that's what I mean when I say our purpose is so much bigger than our career. Our career is only kind of one facet of how that purpose gets expressed in the world. And I, I guess it seems like because we, because in this culture we value things like money and fame and youth, you know, it, uh, young people can feel like I have to achieve X, Y, and Z before I'm 30 or else I failed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a kind of antithetical to what you're describing because what you're describing is something that you carry with you your whole life. Your whole life. And it's also not... Um contradictory to generating wealth, right? Because I told you most of the women that I work with are business owners and I actually help them create um, profitable purpose-driven businesses. So a purpose-driven business is a business that is designed to enhance the quality of life of other people's lives in whatever way. So it might be, you know, doing financial coaching, helping people to take control over their money. It might be health um, resources. It might be work that you do to kind of educate people, whatever it is. Um, it adds value to someone else's life, but it is a business and it is like all businesses supposed to be profitable. So I am not anti-capitalist. <laughs> I'm not against, you know, people amassing wealth. And I actually believe that money is the result of the value that you create in the world. And so if you want to make a lot of money, which you can, like, that's great. Okay, you want to make a lot of money. The object is not to focus on making the money. The object is to focus on thinking about how can I add a lot of value to the world? How can I add a lot of value to my company? Or how can I add a lot of value to my clients? If you add value, then you will reap the reward because money is currency, right? So you've added something and the money will come to you as a result of that. Like, And so, you know, I tell everyone who tells me, oh, I want to make a lot of money. Like, oh, that's great. So think about how can you add tremendous value to the people that you are serving and how can you serve more people? If you do those two things, you will make money. And so I think we have um, set are particularly our young people up to believe that, you know, making money and doing good are mutually exclusive. And yeah, you can do good, but do that after you've made a lot of money mm. and, you know, donate or, you know, do something else. And the point is when your heart isn't in something, you're not going to excel anyway. Like you're not going to be the best of whatever area you're in because it's not, you're not willing to put in that level of energy and creativity and all of that that it requires to be at the top of your game. But if you find something that you do love and it does connect with your purpose, 
whether it's something that other people think will make money or not. It will make money for you because of who you are and because of what you've kind of set yourself up to be able to do. You talk in the book about the importance of writing down plans. So like if someone, once when, when someone has identified what their values are and what they feel their purpose is, and then they have some goals. So if someone had, you know, a business goal, um, you talk about the importance of writing things down and journaling and making lists and not just having the ideas floating around in our heads. Could you talk about why it's important for us to actually pick up a pen and a pad of paper and, and write things down? Yes, because if it is not written down, it is not permanent in you. Like that there is a deeper level of processing that happens when you write something down. And I always tell people, if you have a dream and you don't have a written plan of action to attain that, then that is just a wish. And that's like fairy tales. Like, oh, you know, I wish I was a famous singer. Like, okay, until I create a plan of action to make that happen, that will never happen. So writing down plans allows us to take our dreams and turn them into reality. That's the way in which it becomes real because it focuses our mind, it focuses our attention and focuses our resources in the direction of our dream. So if you can think of, you know, light, um, you know, light's powerful, it allows us to see, it's helpful. Um, But if you can take that light and kind of harness it where it's really, really focused into a laser beam, then it can cut through diamond. And that's what happens when we create written plans of action, that we actually start to focus our mental energy and our attention and our concentration on accomplishing whatever that goal is that we've set for ourselves. And most of the stuff around goal setting, you know, tells people to make smart goals, right? Things that are specific, that are measurable, that are action oriented, that are relevant and that are time bound. And that's great. We definitely should do that. But as I started reading more in the um, neuroscience literature, I was learning that really the way that our brain processes information, that things that are personalized and things that are present tense are um, are processed as at a much deeper level. So. Um, one of the things that I often tell my students is the difference between typing lecture notes and writing lecture notes. And that we have research that shows that when you actually hand write your lecture notes, you retain more information, um, you understand the material better, you can recall it at a later date more easily. And this is without ever even going back and looking at your notes, that just the act of writing actually kind of inscribes it in a deeper level on your brain. And also that our brain um, operates in the present tense. And so the more real we can make an experience, the more um, powerful the emotions generated by that experience. And then emotions are a way of kind of like glue in our brains that it actually seals um, our um, synapses, like the the neural connections that are created get um, glued together and they start to work together um, at a faster rate and a more efficient rate. 
So making something present tense and making it personal, handwriting it, actually makes those goals more deeply inscribed and makes it easier and more likely that you will accomplish them. There are all kinds of things that, you know, we know our brain can develop new capacities and can get better if we give it exercise, if we practice. And so goal setting allows us to develop our brains in the way in which we want them to grow to accomplish the goals that are important to us. So we have unlimited potential, but we don't know how to harness that potential. We don't know how to make that kind of laser focus that will get us to the point that we want. And that's what written plans actually allow us to to do. So, And I would imagine that like any other writing, you're you're writing a draft, right? Like it's not about writing the perfect goals and then that's it forever. It's about, you know, experimenting, right? Like trying stuff out and seeing how it goes. And then if you have to revise a little bit, that's okay, right? Yes, that goal, you write your goals to help you learn who you are and what's important to you. And we should always reevaluate our goals. You know, there's some goals I had when I was 14 um, that aren't goals for me anymore. Like I just told you, my best friend and I were going to have our private practice. I was going to be a psychologist. You know, I reevaluated that goal <laughs> that was no longer important to me. Um, but there was something about that goal that was important to me. I really did want to be able to help individuals um, create the life that they wanted and a life of freedom and a life that allowed them to self-actualize. That was what was behind that goal. And that's what I do now in my coaching practice. And so, you know, whether we... Um, Whatever goal you write, it's great because it gets you to start. <laughs> and as you start and kind of go on that journey, you will learn more about yourself. And perhaps, you know, you'll keep that goal or perhaps it'll morph into something else. But you're not going to get to that thing until you start the act of writing. Yeah, I love that as as defining it as a way to start and not as the end, because I think for perfectionists and recovering perfectionists and uh, people in their 20s who are concerned with trying to get on a path and get on the right path and, you know, do it all right. Um, it's a good reminder that it's about starting this process of discovery that's yeah. ongoing. I think that's yeah. so helpful. What's something that you are learning or growing into right now? Wow. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm always setting goals for myself. Um, but one of the things that I have come to realize is I I can kind of quickly fall into um, complacency. And so I particularly, I realized this around, um, you know, some work that I was doing in my business. And I had set this really challenging goal for myself. And I tell my clients, like, if you set a goal and it makes your heart, you know, stop a little bit, like that's the sweet spot. So I had done that and I actually met the goal and I was like celebrating, like, this is great. And then I realized I didn't set anything else um, for myself. And I kind of, 
I don't know. I started getting more like complacent in other areas of my life and life just didn't seem as exciting anymore. And I, you know, looked up, I was reading something I had written years ago on a blog about constantly reevaluating your goals and why goals are important because they pull you into a new place. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I need a new goal. (laughs) Like I need something you know, to, to inspire me to stretch out and, and be courageous because when I'm scared, like when I set a goal and it scares me, I am both afraid, but I'm also really proud of myself for taking, like taking on this challenge. And, um, yeah, it does give it its own energy and animates my life in some way. And so now I am, you know, working on kind of reminding myself that as I meet my goals and celebrate them, that I really do want to get back in there and figure out what's going to come next and what else can I do with this and, you know, how this works. And I remember there was this woman, um, I think she was the president of like the Girl Scouts and then she got appointed to some international organization. She was in her 90s when she got this new job. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they were interviewing her like, you know, you've already done so much like all this. Like basically, when are you going to stop? (laughs) And she was like, well, like I want new challenges and new things. I have so much more to give. And this is a new opportunity for me to, you know, add value. And I remember thinking, yes, like that's exactly, you know, where it is. So I don't want to just sit and rest on what I have already accomplished. I'm proud of what I have accomplished, but I do want to keep challenging myself, you know, in ways that maybe last year would have been too much, right? I, I wasn't ready to take on these challenges, but um, but now I am. And, you know, I guess when you're weightlifting and they tell yourself, like, you know, you can't just stop. Like once you get to lift, you know, 50 pounds, you can't be like, oh, I did it. That's it. Like now you have to go to 51. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think I'm at that point where I have, the privilege of having accomplished a lot of the scary goals that I set for myself. And I needed to learn that that doesn't mean my process is over. There's so much more that I need to learn. And the way I'm going to learn that is to set some more scary goals for Hmm. myself. Yeah, that does sound like a very courageous way to live, to be continually willing to throw yourself out there and be uncomfortable and and listen for what you're being called to next um, and just be growing um, continually. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for taking the time to talk about all this. I've, I feel like this has been so helpful to me and I know will be for a lot of other people as well. So thank you. Thank you. And before we hang up, where can people find you and your work? So um, you can always connect with me through my website. Um, My business is called, my coaching business is uh, Life in Focus Coaching. And the uh, web address is your, Y-O-U-R, life, L-I-F-E, 
N I N Focus F O C U S Coach C O A C H dot com. You'll be able to see my blog and some videos that I have there. If you're on Facebook, um, you can do a request to join my um, Facebook group. It's a free group and it is called Purpose, Passion, and Power. So um, if you just type those into Facebook, uh, that'll send me a message and then I can um, invite you in. And then for people who are actually interested in um, doing some work to identify their purpose, to think about you know how they can create a profitable, purpose-driven business, I would love to... Um, help you in doing that intellectual work and thinking about what are the concrete action steps that need to be taken in order for you to accomplish that. And I do um, always set aside in my schedule time to do free um, breakthrough strategy calls with people. So the way um, that you would connect with me um, and do that is uh, meet so Keisha, which is um, M-E-E-T dot S-O dot Keisha, K-E-S-H-A. Um, it might be a more on the end of that. I'll have to check. If it doesn't work, meet so Keisha, it might be meet so Keisha more, but meet dot S-O dot Keisha more. And that'll take you to my schedule, my online scheduling system, and you can just snatch a breakthrough strategy call it'll be in your time zone and i'll give you a call and we can talk about your purpose and talk about um how you can create one of these um amazing purpose uh purpose-driven businesses that's profitable that allows you to have income while meeting the needs of others and creating a life that you love and also um, a life that contributes to uplifting of our society. So those would be great ways for me to connect with people. Awesome. I'll make sure to put links to those on um, the show notes page on the Perennials website. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Victoria. This has been fabulous. It's been fun. And I just want to commend you, you know, for the work that you're doing to explore these questions for yourself and in a way that adds value to other people who are asking the same questions and for you to amass um, these resources and share them with you, I think is a tremendous gift and exactly you know what I think we all should be doing, helping ourselves and helping others in the process. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, I really appreciate that. If you liked the episode, I hope that you'll share it and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people to find the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time.